We are in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and 8 today, and today's message is entitled, Israel Returns to the Lord. If you've been with us, you know that we're going verse by verse through this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. In chapter 4, the Israelites lost a battle against their neighbors, the Philistines. Rather than seek the Lord, they tried to manipulate God by taking the Ark of the Covenant out into battle with them. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a golden box that represented God's presence. And with the nation of Israel, they had their tabernacle or mobile temple, and inside of it, in their most holy place, was this Ark. And so it represented God to the people. And they tried to take this box and take it out into battle with them to force God to give them victory. But it didn't work. Instead, Israel was defeated with a great slaughter, and they lost the Ark of the Covenant to the enemy. Last week in 1 Samuel chapter 5, we read how the Philistines took the Ark, and they set it up as a trophy in their land. You see, the Philistines worshipped a false god named Dagon, and they believed, well, we won these two battles against Israel, so our god Dagon must be stronger than the Israelites' god. And yet, the Philistines began to get sick. Many of them began to even die. And so they passed the ark around their land to different cities. And everywhere the ark went, sickness and death plagued them. They realized that they were suffering God's judgment. And so in chapter 6, the Philistines decided, let's send the ark back to Israel. And if all of our sickness and death and plagues cease, then we know that it was the God of Israel that's been plaguing us. And so they sent the ark back to Israel, and when Israel saw it, they rejoiced, and they worshiped, and they sacrificed to the Lord, and then they did something foolish. They approached the ark, and they treated it like nothing special. In fact, they even opened it up to look inside, and because of that, many of the Israelites were judged and were killed because they failed to treat God as holy and special. And so, we ended last week with Israel in a very low place. They had lost over 34,000 men in battle. They were living in bondage to their neighbors, the Philistines. Their high priest, Eli, and his two sons are now dead. Their nation was in ruin. And now, even though they have the ark of God back in their presence, they're still not right with God. And so that's where we pick up our story now in 1 Samuel chapter 7. In verses 1 through 17, we read about Israel's repentance. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. If you like to take notes in your Bible, I encourage you, underline that part. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You see, Israel was not simply weeping and mourning. They were not simply lamenting their losses, nor were they lamenting their suffering but they were lamenting after the Lord. This indicates that their hardened hearts have been softened. 
Remember where Israel was when we started the book of 1 Samuel. The time period of 1 Samuel comes right at the end of the Judges. And Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They disobeyed the Lord. They did whatever they pleased. Even the priests were wicked and rebellious. And yet now Israel is lamenting after the Lord. What softened their hearts? What changed their mindset? Tragedy, loss, and suffering. In other words, God used their pain to soften their hearts. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saying that God causes pain and suffering. But God has given us free will. And in our free will as mankind, we do a lot of things that brings a lot of hardship and pain and suffering upon ourselves or upon others. But in God's sovereign goodness, God will often use pain to shatter the illusion that all is well and ultimately draw us to Himself. If you want to take notes, there's a note sheet in your bulletin, and this is the first fill in the blank. God will often use pain to shatter the illusion that all is well and ultimately draw us to Himself. C.S. Lewis says it this way, he says, pain shatters the illusion that all is well. I liked that quote so much, I just had to steal it and put it in my fill in the blank. He goes on to say, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, when we experience pain, we no longer feel self-sufficient. We humbly realize that we're not very success, successful acting as our own God because we can't control everything. And so, in response to our pain, we have two options. We can soften our hearts and turn to the Lord, or we can harden our hearts and run away from the only one who can give us eternal life and ultimately eternity, where there will be no more pain. And so praise the Lord that here in this chapter with Israel, in the midst of their suffering and their tragedies and their loss, they humble themselves. And they look at the Lord and say, we're in the wrong. They've softened their hearts and they're lamenting after God. And so verse 3, it says, Then Samuel the prophet he spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel simply invites them to remember their covenant or agreement with God. You see, God's covenant or agreement with Israel basically said, if you obey me, I will bless you and protect you. But if you disobey me, I'll remove my hand of blessing and I will allow your enemies to overrun you and conquer you. And so in this passage, Israel gives us an example of how to return to the Lord. And here's the first step. Simply turn to the Lord with all your heart. Turn to the Lord with all your heart. This is the inner decision to love and follow God 
rather than love and follow anything or anyone else. It's the same invitation we read about in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, where it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and He will have mercy on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Isn't that amazing that that is God's heart? In the midst of our rebellion and our running away from Him, God is there eagerly waiting to pardon us and to have mercy on us. When we seek, when we decide to seek the Lord, it all starts with this heart decision, the internal decision. Now look at how Israel responds in the next verse. And so verse 4, the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Now, these are Canaanite gods, the gods of the, the, the promised land before Israel came. And so Baal was thought to be the god of weather, and he would affect the rain and the crops, and, and they're, they're plentiful. And yet Ashtoreth was thought to be the goddess of fertility, a sex god. And these were the gods that they were serving along with the Lord of Israel. Notice it says that Israel turns to serving the Lord only. You see, it wasn't that they stopped worshiping God. It's that they also added in the worship of Baal and added in the worship of Ashtoreth as well. And God says, no, that's not okay. You see, God is a jealous God. And you and I, too, can sometimes find ourselves serving idols while also trying to serve the Lord. God doesn't want our hearts to be partial towards Him, but fully towards Him, surrendered. And so this turning away from idols that Israel's called to do and that they're responding with is the exterior proof that they really did turn to the Lord with all of their heart. The outward actions prove the genuineness of their inward faith. And so too today, your outward actions, my outward actions, they are the evidence of where our heart is truly at. You see, if we claim to be a Christian, but we still talk the same, we still act the same, we still sin the same, then our faith has no evidence. Our external actions should prove who we are. So, when we turn to the Lord, we turn away from idols. Turn away from idols and give Him all of our heart. Now, Israel's faith, we continue to read about in in, uh, verse 6. It says, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, that was a city, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah. They drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Again, underline that part. We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Notice the change in Israel's response. You see, when Israel lost their first battle against the Philistines, their response was simply, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? 
when they lost their second battle against the Philistines and they lost the ark, they said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. When they received the ark back and they opened it up and were judged, then they cried out and said, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? But only now, after they are turning back to the Lord with all their heart, do they finally say the root problem. We have sinned against the Lord. That's an important change, an essential change for each of us to confess our sin. We can't return to the Lord without confessing our sin because we cannot draw near to God without first acknowledging that we are guilty as charged. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We read today during communion, well, men loved darkness, so they did not come to the light. Because if we come to the light, our deeds, our wicked heart is exposed. Well, it's much more comfortable to keep the lights off spiritually. Your house looks really clean when it's pitch black because you can't see any of the mess. And that's what we do spiritually. And that's what the world wants to do. They say, well, I think God's okay with me. I don't think I'm a sinner. I'm a lot better than Hitler. He's my go-to guy. I love that guy because he makes me look so good. And yet this verse tells us, no, you're only deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you if you say that you have no sin. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, it says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and His word is not in us. We cannot have a relationship with God without first acknowledging our own sin. But 1 John 1, verse 9 if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amazing. But we've got to first humble ourselves and come to Him, and then He'll wash away our sins in full. And that's what Israel's finally doing. Israel's finally confessing their sin, repenting from their sin, and seeking the Lord only. Now look at verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. Perhaps they saw the big crowd gathering and they thought, oh no, Israel's going to try to rebel. Let's go stomp on them. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Now, remember, earlier when they were coming against the Philistines, the Israelites had great faith in the ark. Man, they were so confident that they were going to win this new battle because they had the ark of God on their front lines. They were so confident that when the ark entered their camp, Israel shouted so loud that the earth shook. That's amazing. And yet, a lot of them died because their faith was in the ark not in the Lord. Great faith, but in the wrong thing. And yet here, we see Israel has just a little bit of faith. They're terrified. The Philistines are coming once again, but this time their little bit of faith, it's not in the ark, it's in God. And that's going to make all the difference. 
You see, it's not so important how much faith we have, but more important that our faith is in God and not in anything else. Look at verse 8. It says, So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Again, notice the difference. Samuel, don't stop praying to God, our God. Yeah, we're going to call him our God. Not just your God, Samuel, but he's our God. And we're looking for him to deliver us from the Philistines. We're no longer looking to the ark. This reminds us that when we turn to the Lord, it's a continual attitude. A continual attitude. They said, Samuel, do not cease praying to the Lord for us. And again, that's something for us to follow. Do not cease seeking the Lord. Israel didn't turn to the Lord on Sunday and then do whatever they wanted the rest of the week. Israel turned to the Lord and they pressed on. They continued. They abided in Jesus. God doesn't want us to be Sunday morning Christians only. He wants us to be all in, to seek Him daily and constantly. And that's the example we get from Israel here. Look at verse 9. It says, And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Notice it didn't matter that twice before the Philistines had conquered Israel. It didn't matter that Israel was severely under-equipped. It only mattered that Israel was trusting in the Lord for deliverance, and they had chosen to uphold their side of God's covenant with them. And so, verse 11, And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means stone of help. So this stone, this Ebenezer was, was set up there as a reminder, guys, don't forget what God did for us today. Don't forget your decision to return to the Lord today. Don't forget because it's so easy to forget. When the sun's shining and all is well, it's so easy to forget how God came through for us. And so he sets up that Ebenezer, that stone of help. Verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. This wasn't just one day of victory, but this was decades of relief from the Philistines, decades of peace from their enemies. Verse 14 Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. 
Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites, another enemy. And so, while Israel had turned away from the Lord and God removed His blessing and protection, they actually lost some of the promised land to the Philistines. And yet now, as they've repented and they've turned back to the Lord, God is restoring the land that the enemy had taken. And that's what God will often do in our lives. When we choose to return to Him, when we choose to seek Him only, God can restore what the enemy had taken away. Verse 15, it says, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. And so here we fast forward a bit, and we get the summary of Samuel's adult life. He's circuiting these four cities in Israel, bouncing between them as he's leading the people spiritually to continue seeking the Lord. He judged Israel all the days of his life. And now this brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 8. In verses 1 through 9, where Israel demands a king. Again, this is several decades later from last chapter. And we read in verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes and they perverted justice. Sadly, Samuel's sons acted more like the sons of Eli. Rather than serving the Lord and serving the people, they served themselves. They took advantage of others. This is a great reminder that a godly home does not guarantee a godly child. Parents may be like Samuel, loving and serving the Lord all the days of their life, and yet have children that grow up to walk in their own ways. Or parents may be like Eli, Eli the high priest who was very spiritual, and yet he didn't listen to the Lord. And yet he raised a child like Samuel. The greatest example of this is with Adam and Eve, who had the most perfect environment and upbringing. Okay, there was Satan there lurking in the garden. But still, with no sin nature, with God as their heavenly parent, they still rebelled. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I want us to look at three quick points on parenting. And please know, I am not pretending to be a master parent. Okay, I am a sinner and a failure, but I've taken some of the wisdom that I've gleaned from older, wiser people, and I've taken some things from Scripture, and so let's look at them together. The first one says, when it comes to parenting, we have great influence, but not control. We have great influence, but not control. We can't force our kids to love the Lord. We don't have that control, but we can influence them. Because our kids still have a free will. They must choose whether they will follow God's ways or follow their own ways. 
Here's another one. As when it comes to parenting, they'll follow your example more than your words. They'll follow your example more than your words. Sending your kids to church or youth group, that's great. But far better is giving your kids the example of a mom and dad praying together through the good times and the bad. Mom and dad reading their Bibles at home. Mom and dad going to church and life group. Mom and dad running to Jesus in their failure. I think it's so important for us to be open with our children and grandchildren about our failures. Because chances are they know about them anyway. But if we take those opportunities to explain to them, look, I, I blew it. I lost my temper. I, I sinned. I did this. And that's why I need Jesus. And I'm going to heaven not because I'm a good person, but because I've trusted in Jesus. And you turn your failure into an opportunity for the gospel, that will be so impactful for your children. Lead them by example of how to repent and confess your sin to them and to the Lord. And remember, the gospel can change their heart. Your rules can't. Only the gospel can change their heart. And so make your priority pointing them to Jesus. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee! First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. You see, we can make the outside look really pretty, but the inside can still be broken and sinful. And that's true for us individually before the Lord, but it's also true as we try to parent and grandparent our kids and grandkids. We can raise kids that are moral and compliant and yet still be immoral in their hearts because they don't have Jesus. And so keep praying for your kids and your grandkids. Don't just give them the right answers, but live the right answers for them to follow in your footsteps and drip the gospel into everyday life because the gospel is the only door to eternal life. Now, back to our text, we already read that Samuel is old and his sons are wicked. And so verse 4, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, look, you are old. Ouch. Now, it's one thing if somebody calls you old, but notice this was the elders of Israel that called him old. So he must really be up there, okay? So the elders continue, look, Samuel, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Even though Israel had been in the promised land for about 400 years at this point, they'd never yet had a king. God was their king. In fact, at one point during the time of the judges, God used a man named Gideon to lead the people to freedom from their enemies as a leader. And in Judges chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, 
both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord, he shall rule over you. You see, that was God's heart. God wanted to be their king. God wanted to be the one that ruled over the people so that Israel was different from the other nations. But Israel says, we kind of want to be like all the other nations. And so in verse 6, it says, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. God sees this as a rejection of Himself. The people don't want me to be their king. They're rejecting me. The people are discontent with what God desires for them. And so, verse 8, According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So God's basically saying, give them what they want, but tell them what it's going to be like. Warn them of what they're getting into. And in verses 10 through 22, Israel says, king me anyways. And so verse 10, it says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants." And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. God wants the people to know what to expect from their king that they're begging for. And did you notice the pattern? He will take, 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 he will take. Six times. God says, hey, just so you know, kings are takers. It's going to be costly. You're not going to like it. And at the end of all of the he will takes, he says, and you will be the king's servants. When we compare this with God, the king of kings, it's pretty remarkable. Because God, instead of taking our sons and daughters... In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God as King, He gave His Son for us. 
Instead of making us his servants, we read in Matthew 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve us, not to serve himself. And one more, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. You see, rather than taking our sons and daughters and making us His servants, God has made us His adopted sons and His adopted daughters. And He adopts us into His own family. That's the God that we serve. And yet Israel says, I think we really want a new king. And so God goes on to say in verse 18, And you will cry out in that day, Because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Wow. God flat out tells them, I'll give you what you want, but you're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. And look at Israel's response. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us. Again, underline that, no. It's a good idea never to say no to God, and yet here they do. Against all of the wisdom and warnings, they say no, but we will have a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you notice that? Three reasons why they wanted a human king. Number one, they want to be like all the other nations. Number two, they want their king to judge them. And number three, they want their king to go out before them and fight their battles. But God had other plans, better plans for them. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, starting in verse 17, God says to Israel, Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, and that you will walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments, and His judgments, and that you will obey His voice. Also, today the Lord has proclaimed you, Israel, to be His special people, just as He promised you that you should keep all His commandments, and that He will set you high above all nations, which He has made, in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as He has spoken. God says, Israel, I want to make you special. I want to honor you more than any other nation. I want to lift you up high. And Israel says, We'd kind of like to be like everybody else, actually. And then, remember how God fought their battle earlier, today, in chapter 7? As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. How could a human king be better than God? How ridiculous that Israel thought, that was really cool when God used thunder, but I wish we had a human with a sword. That would be so cool. No, it wouldn't. And so, Samuel, in verse 21, 
he heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. And so the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. God knows what's best for Israel, for him to be their king, and yet they want a human king. God told them, you're going to regret your decision, but Israel was stubborn, and they said, no, we want this. Give it to me now. And so God's going to give them a human king. This reminds us to be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. Even if it's not God's best plan for you, He might still let you have it. And if He does, you'll likely regret it. Now, I want us to notice that Israel started chapter 8 with a legitimate problem. Samuel was old and his sons were wicked. They didn't have an idea of who could now lead them spiritually other than a human king. And so when they came to God, they didn't come to God with their problem, but they came to God with their solution. They said, Lord, We've got a problem, but we figured it out. Just give us what we want. They rub the genie, and they ask for the wish. And God says, you're not going to like this. And so they made their demands. And in doing so, Israel gives us a great example of what not to do as believers. On your note sheet, if God is my Lord, I'll come asking, not demanding. If God is my Lord, I'll come asking, not demanding. Even Jesus, God the Son, came asking rather than demanding on the night of His arrest in Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. We're not going to read that passage, but I, I wrote it down there on your note sheet if you want to look it up later. Here's another one. If God is my Lord, I'll obey Him even when I don't like it or understand even when I don't like it or understand, I'm going to say, Lord, I'm going to do what you told me to. We think of Joseph, who suffered for years when his brothers sold him into slavery. And then his slave master tricked him and pinned a crime on him he didn't do, and he gets in jail. For decades, Joseph is suffering, and yet he continues to love and honor the Lord. Again, that passage is on your note sheet for you to look up on your own. Our last one If God is my Lord, I'll trust His answer and timing as best. I'll trust His answer and timing as best. Like when Paul had that thorn in his side, and he prays three times, Lord, please heal this of me. I I could do so much more. I'd really like to be healthy again. And yet three times God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul drops it, and he says, you're right, Lord. Your grace is enough for me. Your answer is okay. Your timing is okay. I'll surrender to you. And so my question for us today, is God your Lord? Or is He something less? Do you need to return to the Lord today? The good news, He's eagerly waiting you with open arms, inviting you to come to Him. Make Him your Lord and make Him your King. 
We'll close with James chapter 4, verse 10, where it says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for Your Word. And God, we thank You that Your Word is full of great examples to follow after and to learn from. And Lord, Your Word is also full of horrible examples of what not to do. And God, as we continue to study through 1 Samuel, we're going to see just what this king became that they demanded of you. And we're going to see how much they suffered because they chose their way instead of your way. God, maybe there's some of us here today or listening online, and God, we've really been demanding our way in life. God, we've said, Lord, this is what I want, and I want it now. And we've refused to treat you as our Lord, refused to treat you as our King. And if that's you today, I invite you to humble yourself and to say, Lord, I'm sorry. God, would you forgive me for my selfishness? God, help me to turn away from my idols. And Lord, help me to follow after you with all my heart. God, may this be a decision every day, not just this morning. And God, would you make us the church you've called us to be, the Christian you're calling us to be, one that lives for you, for your glory, and for your praise, not for our glory, not for the praises of men. God, we pray that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that you would empower us with the faith that we need to keep pressing on in our relationship with you. God, we give you all the glory and praise, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.